This evening we have a major broad sweep of the Essential 100 and we find ourselves this evening in Galatians, it's page 1172 I think, uh, in the Pew Bibles. So we've now reached uh, Galatians in our journey through Essential 100 and we're going to read some verses from chapter 5 commencing at verse 13. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And by the time we reach chapter 5 and verse 16 of Galatians, Paul has vehemently opposed those who wanted to drag Galatian believers into a life of law and legalism. Paul seeks to offer the alternative of God's grace. He reminds them it was for freedom that Christ had set them free. But as he does so, he sees his responsibility to also point out that grace can be dangerous. Indeed, Paul is concerned in verse 13 that they would be careful not to use their freedom to indulge their sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. And it's very obvious that from what follows that love had, as we would say here, love had gone out the window. Love has been lost, and they were, verse 15, biting and devouring each other. And he challenges them to a better way of behaving in verse 16, the way of living by the Spirit, the way of handing themselves over to the ministry of God's Holy Spirit rather than fulfilling their very carnal desires. And here in Galatians 5, verse 17, Paul is pointing out for us the conflict that is going on between our will and that of the Holy Spirit. 
And it's at this stage in the passage that we find the title of our study for this evening. And if you've been following the book, you'll know that we come to the two lists. And here they are. List one, the acts of the sinful nature. And list two, the fruit of the Spirit. And this evening, we're going to look at these two lists under three headings each. And first of all, the acts of the sinful nature. They're in three categories, the sensual, the superstitious, and the social. Now, I have to say that I owe this outline to James Greenwood's kindness, and it has been extremely helpful for me uh, as I've sought to look at these passages this evening. And the first three fall into the category of sensual, sexual immorality. It's there in the Bible in front of you. Just follow these two verses, particularly at verses uh, 19 and 20, and then into 21. Sexual immorality is often translated as fornication, and that's where we get our word pornography from. It refers to all forms of illegal or unlawful or forbidden sexual relationships, such as premarital and extramarital sex and adultery. The world hasn't changed very much, and adultery before and or after marriage is just as rife today as it was for the Galatians, and God's word is every bit as relevant today as it was then. Impurity. And this word, I'm told, has a, it's a bit of a medical jargon, and it was used to describe the pus or the impurities of an unclean wound. Not very pleasant, but then impurity isn't. It's an infection of moral consciousness and purity. An unclean person sees dirt in everything. Very interesting verse in Titus 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Debauchery. Well, debauchery is a lack of restraint for sensual pleasure. And the attitude is, if it feels good, do it. Debauchery describes the reckless, immoral person as one who no longer gives a hoot what people think about or say about his or her behavior. They are totally shameless. They preach what they practice, if you like. It's their chosen lifestyle, and they're quite blasé about their promiscuity. Turn on your television, lift a morning newspaper, and you'll quickly discover that we live in a world in which sex is overemphasized in thousands of ways even down to the very coffee we drink, as I was noticing this week in one of the ads. Advertising agencies and many other people are making sex their idol, giving complete disregard for its holy and its rightful place in life. But what about superstitious acts? Idolatry and witchcraft are religious in nature, but we're very often linked to sexual promiscuity. Indeed, Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. 
And bowing down to graven images is forgiven and is forbidden in Scripture time and time again. But idolatry isn't just linked to graven images. Warren Wearsby has a very helpful and insightful comment on world idolatry and word idolatry, on the word idolatry. It is simply putting things ahead of God and people. He says we are to worship God, love people, and use things. But too often we use people, love self, and worship things and leave God out of the picture completely. Witchcraft, a word I'm told, a Greek word, pharmakia, the use of drugs from which we get our word pharmacy today. And in Paul's day, magicians often use drugs to bring about their evil effects. Drugs used for a sensation or a mind-blowing experience open the user up to the sorcery of the spirit world, which at its worst can even lead to demonic control. Witchcraft or sorcery springs from the desire to be in control of others through contact with the mysterious mysterious spirit world. It entices various kinds of magic or enchantments and is intended to put spiritual powers under our control. In the modern day in which we live, we have things like Ouija boards, tarot cards, seances, spiritism, levitation, astrology, New Age meditation, those are only some of the modern attractions of this particular evil. But moving on to our third heading of the acts of the sinful nature, social. And we have ten of these, so very quickly. Hatred. Dark, ugly feelings of bitterness. Contempt. Or loathing of another person. Discord. Strife is discord. Contention or quarreling is also in this word, often rooted in envy and ambition, the desire for attention and the compulsion to prove that we are right. Uh, Proverbs 6, verse 16 and down to 19 uh, says this, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. That's a very, very striking word. That tells us that God hates those who spread strife and discord. Indeed, the sowing of discord or strife was so serious that Paul wrote in Titus 3, verse 10, that the church should expel a factious person after two warnings. An interesting injunction. Jealousy or envy is not just desiring what someone else has, but it's being embittered because someone else has it. If you can't take pleasure in the accomplishments or abilities of others, then you're susceptible to jealousy. And you know what? And I find this very sobering. It also shows a lack of thankfulness to God that we have worth and significance in him because we are created in his own image. So why do we want to be jealous? 
fits of rage, there's a temper out of control. The temptation to strike out at anything or anyone that threatens our own self-interest. And the word was used of the rapid burning of dry grass, so I believe in that particular day. It flares up quickly like the eruption of a volcano. And this is the, uh, the eruption, if you like, of unrighteous anger. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is fueled by envy and pride. And it's the desire to pull others down who we feel in any way are a threat to us. It displays itself as a determination to get ahead at the expense of others. And indeed, the word was used to describe the man who wants an office or a position, not from any motive of service, but for the power that he can get out of it. So think about deacons and your motive. We were doing that this morning. Dissensions are organized, self-gratifying groups or people joined together to get their own way. And these groups or people are organized to tear something apart instead of bringing something together. And very often here at a service on a Sunday, we'll use the words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Go back and read that sometime, and you'll understand then why Paul was actually saying to the people at that time that there's a better way to come together to remember the Lord. There's better reasons. And there were dissensions then. Factions are usually caused by hurtful breakups brought about by non-essential teachings or opinions. People who hold different opinions or views end up disliking not the other's views, but the other actual person. It should be possible to differ with someone and yet remain friends, but sadly, all too often that isn't the case. And envy, like jealousy, or if you like, ill will or malice, is a wrongful desire to possess what belongs to someone else. More than that, as I've said, it actually begrudges the fact that the other person has these things at all. Drunkenness. Well, drunkenness is really the loss of self-discipline and an appetite that's out of control. Binge drinking and getting wasted would probably be contemporary language for drunkenness. And if you move in certain social circles, you'll hear those words. We were out in a binge last night. So-and-so got wasted. And that's what this is. It's a very helpful comment by Steve Brady in his little commentary on the book of Galatians. When he says, How many have woken up after a binge in a stranger's bed? Innocence stolen, fidelity lost, and a sexual disease or pregnancy to recall the night they can't remember. And sadly how true that is. So there you are, we have the 14 or so acts of the sinful nature. And Paul issues a very strong warning to those who live like this. That for doing so, there is no way they will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a strong warning. They're strong words, but please don't misunderstand what Paul is actually saying here. Paul is not talking about an act of sin. None of us have reached perfection. But he's talking about a habit, not a single act. But those who continually practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom. 
they are solemn words and words which call, I believe, for very careful attention. And at this point, Paul introduces the second list. That's at verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit. And it's not the fruits of the Spirit, but one fruit, if you like, with nine flavors. And here are the nine flavors. Three of them are Godward. Three of them are manward. And three of them are selfward. And the first one, and the first and foremost one, and it has to be, is love. And the word that's used here for love is not the word eros, meaning sensual love. In fact, you don't find that meaning of love anywhere in the New Testament. The word used here is agape, divine love. God's gift to us, Romans 5, verse 5, God has poured out his love, his agape love, into our hearts. And John tells us God is love. And that's the very essence of his being. And Paul is really saying here that all the other flavors of the fruit of the Spirit grow out of this word, love. Perhaps the most beautiful explanation and definition of love is found in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wrong. It does not rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. These three things will last forever. Faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. So everything else flows from love. And the next we have is joy. And if you pick up a dictionary, you'll find that the dictionary defines joy as exaltation of spirit, gladness, delight. And we as Christians must be careful not to mistake joy for happiness. Very often that's the case. Happiness is an emotion that depends on positive circumstances or situations. This word is best seen in the life of Christ himself. The author of Hebrews Uh, At uh, chapter 12 and verse 2 writes this, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember, the Lord did ask if it was possible for that cup of suffering to be taken from him. But he also qualified it by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. And we get a similar uh, example of this over in the book of James, chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I think it's true to say that many of us never see um, trials and testings as joy. 
And yet we can, if we think about what James is saying here, see what he's getting at. Peace. And I think the best example of this word is found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Someone has very interestingly said, we cannot trust God when we are worrying, as well as we cannot worry when we're completely trusting God. And that's what this word peace is all about. And you find the word again in Isaiah chapter 26. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. And this perfect peace and calmness comes from a constant trust in God that he does have plans and purposes for our good and ultimately for his glory. So three Godward and now three manward. Patience. I have to be careful here. My wife's here. But isn't it true that just because we are now children of God, it doesn't mean that we'll always be treated fairly? One of the most difficult lessons to be learned by us as Christians is how do we react to unjust treatment at the hands of other people, especially other Christians? Mistreatment followed Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised when it follows us. So how should we react to unjust treatment? Well, let's look at a couple of passages. And remember, these verses are written to the church, not to the world. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then to the Colossians. Paul wrote, so those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you. Kindness. The biblical example that we have for kindness is God's kindness towards man. God's kindness towards us is revealed completely and perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ. Again, I go to Ephesians chapter 2. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And this fruit of kindness can be found at least 50 times throughout the Bible, and it has at least three different meanings. True kindness is gentle. Kindness is often found in the Bible being used as the opposite of quarrelsome. True kindness is compassionate. This is not sympathy, but empathy. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone 
or some situation. While empathy is feeling sorry with someone, it is putting ourselves in another's place, doing all that we can to help meet their needs. And true kindness is forgiving. Offering true godly kindness brings us to repentance. This is also true of those who have sinned against us when we offer kindness rather than bitterness. And this shows the character of God. And as his word said, it leads to repentance. Romans 2. Or do you think lightly of the richness of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Goodness. You see, a lot of people are under the assumption that good people will make it to heaven. And that's not biblical. And they're misunderstanding the, the biblical word and the biblical meaning of goodness, preferably God's goodness. It's much more than just the avoidance of evil. It carries with it so much more. If you go back to the book of Exodus, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. God's goodness carries with it the idea of his sovereignty, his nature, his character. It speaks of his liberating power as well as his reproof or reproach of evil things. And this means to us that we are to take a stand for God's righteousness. Even if nobody else will, it behoves us to show his goodness, uh, his sovereignty. And it says here in the uh, scriptures that we look at as we pick up this word goodness, God's goodness shines into our lives. And that light in us shines into the darkness. We have it in Matthew 5 and Romans 12. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, your goodness, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And Romans 12, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good or goodness, God's way of doing things. We're nearly there. Three Godward, three manward, and now three selfward. And the first of these is faithfulness. The fruit of faithfulness is one of the most important characteristics that we as Christians should try to practice and perfect. The Bible has a lot to say about faithfulness in areas of our lives. Again, understanding that the fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love. Faithfulness is a direct result of our love relationship with the Lord Proverbs 3, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. And all too often we want to experience the blessings of the end result without going through the process. Faithfulness through the pain and through the process is where the blessings of God are found, not just in the end result. And the biblical meaning of faithfulness carries with it the strong emphasis of being trustworthy, loyal, reliable, 
and steadfast. Again, we have it in a number of scriptures, but I've just put three of them there. One from Proverbs, one from 1 Corinthians, and one from Revelation. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Gentleness. The word gentleness is translated and used as one who is humble in disposition. It's also translated meekness, suggesting submission to another. But the word meekness shouldn't ever be taken to mean weakness. Rather, it carries with it the meaning of strength under control. It has the idea of a a wild horse, if you like, being trained. And they are incredibly strong. But when they're bridled, they're under control. They haven't lost their strength. They've just had it restrained. And that's the word that we have here for gentleness. And again, in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul is saying, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And finally, self-control. The King James Version refers to this as temperance. It means to have mastery over one's own desires and impulses. And the New Testament translation of self-control means to have an inward strength, control what's in there. Let me just finish with words, not this time from Paul, but very similar words that we find in Second Peter chapter 1 and verses 5 to 11, because in many ways, Peter sums up or repeats all that Paul has tried, well, some, a lot of, Uh, of what Paul has been trying to say. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. Then he puts it very positively, the way the warning came from Paul. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So dear brothers and sisters, Work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things, and you will never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.